Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi there, and welcome to the Explaining History podcast. And today I'm going to be talking about the development of a Victorian and Edwardian women's press, particularly a women's press um, focused around uh, suffrage um, and the campaign for suffrage. Um, the reason why I'm going to talk about this is as I think it's important um, to look beyond the conventional images of uh, women's suffrage Um, that we have, which are, are brought to us by um, the, the popularization of the suffragette movement, um, and to look at kind of almost like the long tail of the, the suffrage movement, which was a, a steady development throughout the 19th century of ideas, debates, discourses, uh, and arguments. And you can normally find these things in the, the various um, magazines and periodicals and pamphlets that were being published. And you can also see very interesting shifts and changes in trends and attitudes and opinions over time. And these sorts of um, gradual shifts uh, help us to make sense of the, uh, the radicalism of the pre-war years. Um, there's uh, currently... Um, generally being rather mythologized and mystified in um, uh, films such as uh, the current one out about uh, the suffragettes. Um, you should take with a, a healthy pinch of salt if I were you. Okay, so between about the 1850s and the 1930s, there was a vibrant and popular women's political press in Britain, and it developed and um grew really as the um, Reform Acts of 1867, 1883 and 1884 um, and 1918 um, gave expanded uh, suffrage rights predominantly for men and it evolved from the existing body of writing for women or if you will, for women that was done in the first half of the 19th century that was written predominantly by men for women. Most of the kind of the periodicals for women before about 1850 were written for um, wealthy, educated, middle-class ladies, um, and it was written by men, and it was at handy hints on um, how to arrange one's domestic service, how to um, um, make sure your husband was happy, 
in how to deal with the staff. So it was a kind of a periodical uh, about the uh, the dilemmas that wealthy middle class women faced in the world of kind of um, Victorian bourgeois society and what to do about that. The classic of its kind, I suppose, is um, Mrs. Beaton's book of household management, um, again, which has been popularised in subsequent decades as the first great you know recipe book if you will and it wasn't it was a book about social class uh, mrs beaton's guide to uh, managing the household was really about making sure that you picked the best staff and you got them to do what you wanted and managing a victorian household for a, a bourgeois victorian lady was, was quite a um, a uh, uh, quite an art um, interestingly that book is published in 1861 and the the laws surrounding you know publication and censorship were relaxed in the 1850s, and so the, it is the first main book about um, how, you know household uh, management and that kind of thing. Obviously, really you know in you know in in every way kind of hardly the kind of political tracks that we're going to talk about. Um, but it was the first one to be published by by a woman. So in the second half of the 19th century. When press laws um, are relaxed, um, the profusion of new uh, texts and publications, newspapers, that kind of thing is quite remarkable. There seems to be a huge pent-up energy for um, expressing um, new political ideas. And these papers, pamphlets, leaflets, booklets... And this whole sort of um, world, new world of publishing is expressly politicised. Um, and it uh, really reflects the fact that um, women are treated as, obviously, as second-class citizens in Victorian society, particularly as it comes to their children and their property. Um, there are women and who, are, who fall foul of divorce law, who lose everything when you know even when they, the husband is at fault in the divorce through infidelity women who experience domestic violence women who are terrified to leave the matrimonial home uh, because they may never see their children again and the beginnings of suffrage kind of coalesce around the this, this one concept that um, women will only be able uh, women of means particularly will only be able to have uh, full and equal property rights, particularly over the issue of divorce, um, if they have uh, representation. And it is women of means that are um, you know, ladies um, who are um, at the forefront of this new wave of uh, women's publishing. They're the ones with the uh, ability to finance it. They've got the education and the capital behind them in order to do this. And the first uh, major publication um, that focused on women's legal rights was published by Barbara Bodekin, and it was called the English Women's Journal. And it was began in 1840, 1858, and um, she was uh, a uh, integral figure in the early suffrage movement and a campaign of, against the divorce laws. Um, and she had uh, she was the, one of the first people to articulate through her works. Um, that the um, the only full representation, only the 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 vote, could ever fully protect uh, women's rights before the courts. In 1854, for example, she wrote a devastating critique of the existing uh, divorce laws, and she called it a brief summary of the laws of England concerning women. 
um, in eight, it took till 1882, mind, for the findings of this um, article to uh, evolve into the Married Women's Property Act, which finally established women's um, uh, rights to property uh, post-divorce. And the the initially the issue of suffrage is approached indirectly. Uh, it's too much of a political hot potato to um, demand straight away. Um, it is sort of hinted at, suggested and implied that women should have the vote or things would be better for women if they did have the vote. But the focus of the English Women's Journal, um, in order to allow English women to be able to read it, to allow for their husbands to feel this was appropriate for their wives to read, um, it focused on um, issues surrounding the home. So uh, the legal rights of women at home and the desire of many women to have careers. And it reflected the aspirations, really, of the middle of a middle-class audience. Because at this time, of course, there, there's very little written, um, only in a kind of a, a, a philanthropic way um, is anything written about the working classes. Um, and the um, English Women's Journal gradually um, morphed into the uh, English Women's Review, um, in 1866, uh, which was then edited by Jessie Boucheret and um, was now slightly more political. Interestingly, 1866 is a year of um, intense political activism and um, an intense kind of uh, violence, if you will, uh, on the streets of most of Britain's cities, uh, on the eve of the 1867 Reform Act, um, the uh, Social Democratic Federation, really sort of Britain's own sort of emergent Marxist uh, party uh, under the auspices of Henry Hindman, was part of a, a huge and violent demonstration in, in Hyde Park that year, uh, demanding uh, demanding the vote. So these are kind of febrile political times, and it was it gave opportunities for women's publishing to become that little bit more politicised. I wouldn't go anywhere near calling it radical at this point, but politicised at least. And the uh, years 1865 to 66, uh, again, in the run-up to the Reform Act, saw a profusion of women's suffrage societies, groups like the Kensington Society, uh, which really is the the kind of the beginnings of um, the NUWSS, or the, the kind of the... Uh, the framework of it. The um, multiplicity of these new organisations seems to have injected women's writing in this period of time with a kind of a new um, level of um, outspoken confidence. Uh, Lydia Becker, for example, who was the daughter of a, a wealthy a chemical magnate from Manchester um, and a, a scientist, um, be, took, uh, established the Women's Suffrage Journal uh, in 1870, again with Jessie Boucherie. Um, the financial pressures that existed on these magazines meant that they could, they were funded from the pockets of people like um, Lydia Becker. And so they were um, female-run, um, and they were run by um, you know, middle-class uh, middle women of a respectable nature, um, using the term as it would have been in the context at the time. And um, they, they had to obviously sell the publications, couldn't give them away. 
and they needed to have an effective network of vendors. And so there, this emerged in the, the guise of the uh, of Victorian and Edwardian London female newspaper street sellers, um, who were first seen as a novelty, you know, something um, that was sort of chuckled at in the Times and the Pall Mall Gazette indulgently, but uh, then became the sort of the subjects of uh, vitriol and criticism and anger and resentment. And this was, you know, perfect political training, really, for um, the, the future struggles to come. So many of the uh, veteran uh, suffragists and suffragettes by the turn of the century, had spent years being heckled and uh, sworn at in the streets for... Uh... Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Um, selling um, publications um, such as um, the various uh, the various suffrage journals. Um, as the scope of um, women's journalism uh, developed, so did the the subject matter um, grow more uh, diverse. So issues again such as suffrage and property and employment rights and domestic violence were um, well discussed within this uh, new world of pamphlets and periodicals. But also, social issues began to be linked to um, questions of women's suffrage and women's rights, and issues such as prostitution, particularly child prostitution um, or white white slavery, um, and um, poverty uh, began to be explored. And so, um, ideas that connected uh, women's suffrage to essentially socialist concepts, that there was a, a, a class uh, perspective to be had and a, um, a social perspective to be had on the struggle for uh, women's, um, uh, uh, women's emancipation started to kind of filter into the, this debate. Now, it must be said that there is surprisingly little social radicalism in the top echelons of the... Um, the uh, suffrage movement, as discussed before, 
and suffrage movement's uh, original origins were uh, based around establishing votes for women in order to protect women's um, and property women's rights. There was very little discussion of protecting the rights of working class women um, who were on a daily basis far more transgressed against uh, than most uh, wealthy ladies in polite society could possibly imagine. In um, the Pankhurst family, of whom we will talk about in a moment, um, were almost exclusively, with the exception of daughters Christabel and Adela, um, Sylvia and uh, Emmeline Pankhurst were by and large uh, interested in right in, in votes for ladies, and they are horrified when uh, Christabel and Adela uh, Pankhurst go to see if they can solicit the support of working class women in the East End and try to kind of raise their level of political consciousness. This was seen as entirely not the thing to do. Because as the politicisation of the women's movement in the um, 1890s uh, continues apace, the idea develops um, that not only should property for wealthy women be protected, but also if women had a role, um, had a vote, they might elect their peers who might be able to run Victorian and Edwardian society in a largely more rational and, and efficient way. This was the, the kind of the view. So there was little discussion ever of social revolution. Not to say that these were hard-hearted people and they did not care about the plight of the poor. I think that would be unfair to say as well. But they viewed um, their duty to the poor in a traditionally Victorian philanthropic way. That, you know, the... Uh, the lower classes need to be kind of guided and shaped and educated and given a helping hand, um, but simply kept um, at the level that they were at in terms of political representation. Um, in 1906, when uh, the Liberal government comes to power, um, the, it's headed by Herbert Asquith, who has no intention of uh, allowing women to have the vote, and this is a kind of a, a moment of developing militancy amongst the um, uh, the suffrage movement. In 1903, the Manchester Society, National Society for Women's Suffrage, uh, which had been part of the NUWS uh, movement um, since 1897, um, it develops into the Women's Social and Political Union. And this is a far more militant organisation dedicated to um, ending the inaction over women's votes. Um, They launched their own newspaper, Votes for Women, and it was established in 1907. It was different from its more moderate predecessors. It was funded by Emmeline and Frederick Pedick Lawrence, um, but for the first two years it had a very modest circulation. It was just 5,000 readers. The WSPU uh, used promotional activities such as the advertisements on a newspaper on, uh, of its newspaper on the side of London bus. Um, by 1910, its circulation had leapt to 120,000 a month. Um, it had attacked the government measures um, against the suffragettes during the uh, the Cat and Mouse Act, and uh, it um, promoted acts of civil disobedience, which was kind of of questionable legality, um, yeah, promoting um, the breaking of, of the law. 
Um, however, it, it come, things come to a head within the WSPU. The WSPU is a very divided movement. And when the Lawrence, the, the, the Pedic Lawrences um, told Christabel Pankhurst again um, in 1912 that, um, um, she, he, that uh, plans to set fire to uh, buildings as part of the, the campaign uh, was really a step too far. She expels them from the union, from the movement, and they leave, but they leave with their newspaper. So um, the newspaper uh, votes for women goes with them, and it, it, it kind of divides off from the WSPU. So a, a subsequent um, publication was set up called Suffragette, um, and it, it follows the uh, Christabel's line of overtly militant actions. I'm not sure how Emmeline felt about all of this, really. Um, and it has a circulation of not quite the same as the, as Votes for Women. It has a circulation of 10,000 a week by the eve of the war, and which shows perhaps that there was a uh, much more limited appetite for these kinds of, of radical actions. But um, it also is profoundly transformed by the war. So um, the... Not only had under the uh, the the kind of the influence of the more radical, more left uh, wing um, Christabel, had started to uh, shift towards embracing voting rights for all women, so for working class women as well as middle class and respectable ladies, it began begins to um, use images of um, the working classes uh, within its um, publicate within within its pages to really bring to the attention of um, middle-class ladies uh, the plight of their social, uh, of their, uh, social lower, lowers or inferiors. Um, there were negotiations between the WSPU and um, the government during the war, for well, just on the eve of the war, I beg your pardon, for uh, the release of uh, suffragists, suffragettes imprisoned, uh, due to their kind of window-breaking campaigns and arson and that sort of thing, in return for an end to the protests. Um, in 1914, the suffragette is rebranded the Britannia and becomes a, trans- and becomes a patriotic uh, periodical, a patriotic newspaper, uh, which is um, completely geared up to supporting the war effort. Part of the reasoning was that uh, it was assumed that if the suffragettes supported the war effort, there would be some kind of payoff after the end of the war uh, for uh, women in terms of, of suffrage. But also there was a belief that civilization was now being defended and that you know unless a national effort to pull together and defeat the barbaric German horde uh, as it was depicted, unless that was um, focused on, then there was... Going, there were probably not going to be votes for anybody, um, but it also shows you a kind of weakness, really, within uh, the editorial direction of the, um, the the suffragette, and it shows you that um, if there were radical roots um, within the the Pankers family, that they 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 don't run particularly deep. Um, there are uh, all manner of um, socialists, trade unionists, radicals and revolutionaries 
who in 1914 are either imprisoned or um, punished in a variety of other ways for refusing to give the war their blessing, even if it is allegedly um, supposed to be fought in the defence of of civilization. So, really, the development of the uh, the women's suffrage movement can be seen through the development of these these periodicals and these leaps forward, and sometimes even kind of backward, really in um radicalism and in kind of egalitarian egalitarian thought and there have been several generations of these since uh, the 1850s onwards um there was really up until the eve of the second world war still a very vibrant women's press and perhaps this is something that um dies after world war 2 and um, you know, discourses uh, for uh, women and um, become less of a less of a key issue after the Second World War. I mean, well, after the First World War, really, because of the development of suffrage. But certainly after the Second World War, um, other social forces and social tensions uh, become um, more more prevalent. You have things like the post war post war periods after nineteen fifty four. Really, post war periods of relative affluence um, and the debates surrounding um, women and women's rights really emerge in the later 1960s when you have a kind of a a new waves of political activism and new waves of feminism but once again the extent to which these were working class discourses is 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 very debatable indeed anyway um, I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast Um, it's been great to talk about something a bit different this morning and um, I'll uh, I'll speak to you again, no doubt. All the best. Take care. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.